This is the word of the Lord. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. Thank you, Jenny. Good morning, church. My name is uh, John Fox, and I'm the administrative pastor here at the church. And um, as Aaron said at the beginning, we are in our final sermon here in the sermon series of um, God with us in this Advent series. God with us. And we have, um, we have seen so far over the previous three weeks God with us in our hopes and our fears. God with us in the mundane, just the everyday occurrences of life. And God with us in our sorrows last week. And, um, and this week, as Aaron said, we're really addressing God with us in our joys. And uh, really love the liturgy and all the songs that we've gone through at this point because it, it warms us up to that truth. And I think that's really important because this has been a hard year for joy. It's been a hard year for joy. Even as I'm, I'm singing and I'm, I'm reading and I'm hearing the liturgy, I think, <laughs> joy, you know. Uh, am I, first of all, when's the last time I experienced this kind of joy that I'm singing about, you know? Uh, second of all, am I the best person to be preaching about this joy? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> yeah, but that was Aaron's decision, so thank you, Aaron. <laughs> So um, I just want to say that as, as we uh, get into today's passage in Luke 2, it's all about joy. Uh, but we have some real hindrances. We have some real um, barriers and roadblocks when we come to this kind of passage and we see a joy that's so exuberant, so powerful, so overwhelming that we really don't experience it. And um, so before I start, I just want to pray uh, for you, pray for me, pray for us, uh, that God would uh, speak to us and we would experience some of this joy here that we see. Father, I thank you for um, your word. Thank you for this individual passage that we have recorded from Luke um, about the birth of your son, him coming into the world, and the otherworldly joy that is demonstrated right here. A joy that literally is so great, it, it catches angels up with it. And they can't help but sing about it. Lord, so would you uh, give us a little bit of that this morning? We need it. We need you. And we ask in your son's name, amen. So, joy. Uh, when I started to think about joy here, in this passage, <clears throat> um, my mind just naturally turned to... Uh, 
bigger question. That's bigger questions about joy. That's the way that my mind works. And so I um, started to think about joy and uh, where joy comes from and, and all those kinds of things. And uh, it didn't take long for me to kind of go through my Bible Rolodex in my mind and start to think about um, joy related to God in the Scriptures. And uh, we have a number of references, uh, of course, in the Old Testament, starting out about joy. And um, I'm not going to read all these to you, or you're not going to have them on the screen. Um, but just to take a sampling of them, um, in First Chronicles, one of the things that happens um, as, as David is experience, experiencing God's goodness, he gives a psalm or a song of, of thanksgiving to God. And First uh, Chronicles uh, chapter 16, starting verse 32, he says, Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. So David's mind of, of God is that he's so joyful that when he comes, the earth starts singing. Because it can't contain it. Uh, in Psalm 4, David says that for greater, that the joy that he receives from God is greater than food. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have, these other people. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. Now, I really enjoy a good burger or a good steak. And I think we all enjoy those kind of things. Good food, good drink, good company. David says, the joy that can come from God is better than those things. Not, not that we shouldn't enjoy those things, but it can be better. In Zephaniah 3, uh, 17, a strange verse to us says that uh, the Lord shouts over Israel, his people. Uh, he, he dances over them with shouts of joy. God is extremely joyful and happy. In Song of Songs, probably most shocking to us, in chapter 5, verse 1, this constant dialogue is going uh, back and forth between the man and the woman, the man and the woman, man and the woman. And every great once in a while, there will be a narrator commentary. And here's what uh, the narrator says in chapter 5, talking about the intimacy of marriage. Eat, friends, drink, and be intoxicated with caresses. You see, the God that we have is a God who is so full of joy, we can't even rightly think about it. Because when we think of joy, it's often abstract from God. But what we see in this passage is that um, that's not the way that God is. That's not what God wants. The joys that we have in life are joys that are meant to be experienced in and with God. And that's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us, and I, I think because when we receive good things, joyful things, our heart's tendency is to enjoy those things apart from God. Uh, I have two biblical examples for you that come to mind. Um, one is King David. King David, you know, he goes through immense trials and difficulty. He ends up finally becoming king after a lot of civil war. He conquers his enemies they're almost all conquered. Uh, he almost is ruling over everything. And then what happens? He starts to experience and enjoy the fruit of his labor. 
and he sends his army and his troops off to battle, and he stays in Jerusalem. And then he is up late one night, because he was sleeping in the middle of the day, and he sees a beautiful woman on a rooftop, Bathsheba. And he, he falls into sin, commits adultery with Bathsheba, tries to cover it up, murders her husband, a tremendous mess. David is enjoying the fruits of his labor. He is, he is enjoying the good gifts of God. But it doesn't take long for that to turn bad. Not only that, if you want a more secular example, like an unbeliever, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings the world has ever known, ruled over more, was wealthier than you and I could imagine. And he is at the height of his glory and power. And Daniel chapter 4 tells us that he looks around and he says, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence for my vast power and my majestic glory? And at this point, he knows Daniel. He's heard about the one true God. The one true God has, in fact, already saved him once, given him a vision. And yet Nebuchadnezzar takes these good gifts and he says, I'm not going to enjoy those with God. I'm going to enjoy them for myself. Why? Because they're about me. All of those things are about me. And one of the reasons I love Nebuchadnezzar is because uh, there's no posturing. There's no pretense. He's so incredibly arrogant, he'll just tell you, I'm the most important person in the world. And that's how we all are. We act that way. Um, one other section here to tie it up for you is in Proverbs 30 from the, uh, the wise man. He says, two things I ask of you, talking to God. Two things. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. What we see from uh, Agur here is that he knows. He knows that for his own heart, there's such a temptation to say, if I have too much, if I'm in comfort, if I'm in a place of life where I don't, I don't really need to worry about things in a sense, my heart goes straight to a place where I say, who needs God? And we do the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy God's good gifts. James clearly tells us that the Father of lights is the source of all good gifts. And as the Father of lights, we need to enjoy gifts. But to hear the word from Agur here to say, there, there is a kind of living that is that puts our heart immediately in a place where we say, who needs God? Or, like Edgar says, um, instead of who needs God, in a sense that I have everything, who needs God? I'm going to do it for myself. I'm going to steal. And so there's a real uh, temptation for us here, as I think as we talk about joy, to think about joy abstract from God, apart from God. But that is not the way the scriptures talk about it. And so... While the first attitude that Agur is talking about here, he says, I have enough, therefore I don't need God. And that's the first way he's talking about it. And the second way, he says, I don't have enough, therefore I will use God to give me what I want. Both of those things miss the mark. And we live in both of them often. 
And so um, this morning, I want us to think about that in relation to the Christmas season because all of us here during this time of year give a lot of presents. We give a lot of gifts and we receive gifts. But how do you feel when you are treated this way? Let's say that you, you invest a lot of money into a gift for somebody and uh, a lot of thought and you try to craft the idea and you're like, what is the thing that they want? And so you give it to them and they say, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. But next week you find out that it was re-gifted to somebody else, right? Now I'm not saying you can't re-gift, okay? Yes. But, but how do you feel about that? You, you feel like, man, they don't even appreciate like all the thought or all the energy I put into that. Not only that, um, how do you, f- maybe, maybe that's not the, the issue with kind of what strikes you. Maybe it is that somebody has intimated to you that, that, it, that you don't really love them unless you buy them something. See, that's the second way that Hagar is talking about this. And, and both ways fail. And so this morning, I want us to look at Luke 2, and we're going to see, uh, I think, one main point from the passage, and it's this. That God is the source and companion of all our joys. God is the source and companion of all our joys. And there are uh, three things Luke tells us to do to experience this joy that we can pull out of this passage. Number one, um, I believe Luke says we need to know our reality. We need to know our reality. And so I've talked about this a little bit already, but uh, for Luke, as he's writing, he begins this chapter, in verse 1, saying, in those days, in those days. Now, when we read in those days, we just think, oh, days, great, at a certain time in history. That's not how the Jewish people are thinking about it. That's not how Luke is thinking about it. In those days means in those days of oppression, in those days of slavery, in those days of bondage, this happened. And so it immediately calls us, and it immediately would have called Luke's original hearers to say, in those days, yes, those days that never should have existed, those days that are after God already took Israel out of Egypt, after he already freed them from bondage and slavery, in those days. And then he says, talking about those days, that Joseph, he was... Joseph, he was of the house and the family line of David. You can't talk about David without talking about God's promises, which is talking about why God needs to give promises to us because we're so helplessly lost and in bondage. Bondage not to a human person or a human system or a government, bondage to sin, bondage to brokenness of the world. So he says that Joseph, he was of the house and family line of David. And then in verse 8, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping a watch at night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. This is the, the reality that Luke is talking about. In those days. And I would say, in a very real sense, we are in those days. And so Luke says, our reality is that we're in a broken and sinful world. 
And more than just being in a broken and sinful world, as he's talking about it, he says that we are a people that when God's messenger shows up, not even God, just like the the report of who God is, the immediate thing that happens is terrifying, terrifying expectation of death. Every time... um, Every time in the scriptures that an angel shows up, as far as uh, I, I've studied, as far as I know, or I could find, every single time an angel has to say to the human or humans, do not be afraid. So it's really a shocking thing here that in those days, in this time of bondage and slavery, that an angel shows up, and then every time an angel shows up, you think, I'm dead, it's over. And because we don't read this that way, we don't think about it this way, we think of angels as small little baby cherubs on clouds with overly sized or way too small wings and rosy cheeks. That is not how the Bible talks about angels. The way the Bible talks about angels is this terrifying presence, often weapons in hands, swords, ready to slay the evildoer. One angel in the Old Testament takes out over 185,000 people that are encamped against Israel. One angel. And so we, when we see an angel show up here and the, the shepherd's terrified, the reality is that they understand as soon as they are in the presence of an angel, which is kind of a remote presence of God, reflecting God's holiness and majesty, that they recognize we're done for. We deserve judgment. There's no way around it. And so our reality, as Luke begins here to tell us, is, is not to avoid the truth about who we are, where we live, and what our nature is. We are in desperate need of God's grace and completely deserving of his just judgment. That's how Luke begins this in those days. And anything from that point is good news. Anything from that point. And so I want us to consider this morning that not enjoying God's good gifts is sitting in this situation. When God shows up and we experience a little bit of his holiness... In his presence, confession should pour out. We see it all through the Old Testament. Isaiah, cold to the lips. David, abased as he's in the presence of God. All over the Old Testament. As soon as an angel appears, even in the New Testament here, an angel shows up and people understand and they acknowledge, I am deserving of God's judgment. And that is not something that our culture naturally uh, agrees with anymore. But this is something that is at the very beginning of understanding the good news. And so this morning, do you accept the brokenness of the world? Do you accept your own brokenness? When we get a little glimpses of it like that, when, when uh, somebody doesn't really honor or respect the gift that you give, or someone intimates that it's not enough, you don't love them, and they're trying to use you or manipulate you. We get little pictures of what it's like for God to feel those things. And he does feel them.
But that's not the only thing that uh, Luke shares with us this morning. Second thing I think that uh, Luke wants us to know is an experience of God's presence. Experience of God's presence. In Luke 2, 10 to 12, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and laying in a manger. As I said, these shepherds are quaking in their sandals. And they feel like the death sentence has been passed. It's just a matter of moments before they are executed. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Why? Because of incredibly good news, joyous news. The word uh, in Greek for good news here is the verbal form. And it's, uh, it's a word that is used probably mainly by Paul in the New Testament. But it's not just good news like a noun. We think good news like, oh, it's a, it's a thing, you know. No, this is the verbal form, which I take to mean uh, that it is active. This is good news that is doing something. And um, I think the good news here just melts the fear off of these shepherds. That's what the, the good news does. And God's presence is at the source of this good news. Jesus come as a baby. And, um, you know, with all of our cultural references and jokes about baby Jesus, I, I, it's really hard to experience what I think Luke is talking about here. So I'm going to take a stab at it from the Old Testament. God's presence, Luke is saying, has returned. And that, that news just totally passes over us. Like it doesn't mean a whole lot. But this is a, um, a high point of anticipation in the biblical narrative. When we're reading Genesis all the way through Revelation, this point is a point that is highly anticipated. And we see it highly anticipated in just a little bit from the angels. Because it's not just one. There are thousands that come to, to say and sing what God has done. When we look back into Genesis in the Garden of Eden, what we see is God with man and woman in the garden. And um, that's really important because when we try to look at God's presence here, In Luke and before, what we see is that God's presence and glory are inseparable. You can't ever separate those two things. God's glory, which is his his weightiness, how much he's worth, and his presence are always combined. Such that In the Old Testament, whenever you see a revelation from God or God's presence in the form of light or something like that, you say it's a manifestation of God's glory. His presence is his manifestation of his glory. And so uh, in the garden, God is walking with Adam and Eve. And as he's walking with Adam and Eve, they experience his what? Presence. He's there with them. Not only that... um, When Adam and Eve sin, his presence is cut off from them. They are repelled. They are put out from the garden. And now they are guarded from going back into the garden by an angel. 
an angel with a fiery sword to keep them from going back into God's presence. Why? Because if they go back into God's presence as fallen creatures, they die. There is no returning. God's presence is no longer a good thing, a safe thing. God's presence is now quite dangerous. And from that point in the story, we see it go on and on. And in Exodus, you know the burning bush example when uh, the, the moment when Moses sees a light in the distance and he goes to it on the mountain and he comes before it and God speaks through the burning bush and says that uh, he needs to take off his sandals because this is holy ground. That means that God's presence is there. His glory is there. And where God is, it's very dangerous for humans. Very dangerous. Exodus twenty four seventeen talking about God coming to the uh, mountain, says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. So when people see God's presence, his manifested glory in the form of light or fire on the mountain, they see his glory. And not only that, this, this presence of God is an experience that Moses has that sets him apart from almost everybody else in the scriptures. His experience of God was so otherworldly, so sustaining, that he's able to stay on this mountain with God for 40 days with no food and no drink. So even though this is a dangerous presence, it's a nourishing presence. It is something that is better for Moses than anything he has ever experienced. And then on the mountain, as Moses is with God, what does he say? And you should have this, Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses says, I need someone to go with me if I'm going to lead these people. He said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now I have indeed found favor with you. Please teach me your ways, and I will know. I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, this is God, my presence. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So Moses says, how am I supposed to do this? No one's going with me. I need help. And God's answer is, my presence will go with you. My presence will. If your presence, Moses says, does not go with me, don't make us go up from here. How will it, not, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, let me see your glory. God's glory and God's presence are inseparable. And the only thing that Moses wants is God's presence. It's better than everything else. It gives him more joy than anything else in life. And then later on in Exodus 40, as they build the tabernacle, they left the mountain, they're going into the promised land, Then it says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting. 
That's the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God's glory, which is his presence, manifested at a certain place and a certain point in time. And so filled it that Moses couldn't do anything. Completely overcome, overwhelmed. Not only that, later on, David's heart, King David's heart, was to build a temple for the Lord so that all the nations could come and experience his presence. That's what he wanted. God at the center. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build it. Your son will build it. Solomon builds the temple. And in 2 Chronicles 5, what happens is God honors Solomon's prayer. He fills the temple. Falls down from heaven on it. And it says uh, that the priests were unable to minister to the Lord. They had an experience of God that was so overwhelming, it overcame their senses. They couldn't even, I love that verse because the whole point of the priest is to offer sacrifice, to offer prayers, to offer propitiation, to, to remove this divine wrath that's coming. And it says the priests couldn't even minister before the Lord because they're so overwhelmed. This is a presence. This is an experience of God that you never forget. You never forget. But as we all know, God's presence did not stay in the tabernacle. It didn't stay in the temple. And Ezekiel, towards the end of the Old Testament, actually tells us in chapter 10 that God's presence, as Ezekiel sees it, he looks over at the temple, seeing this uh, prophecy, this revelation from God, and the, the presence of God lifts from the temple and leaves, going out east of Jerusalem. And God's presence is gone. Not long after that, no revelation from God comes anymore. No prophecies, no visions, no words, nothing. Silence. Without God's glory and God's presence, there is no revelation of who he is. And so we see up to this point in those days now is 400 years of silence. 400 years of no revelation from God. No presence of God. And then, as Luke writes in Luke 2, an angel shows up. And with the angels, the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the presence returned. And it's not just the presence of the angel. The glory of the Lord, that is the one true God, comes back. And the announcement from the angel that is good news for us here is that he says the presence has returned. Came back this night. In a stable. And what's crazy is that God's presence and his glory, his manifested glory, his goodness, everything that he is, did not return to a physical building. It returned in the form of a boy. A child, a helpless child. So the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid anymore. I proclaim to you good news of great joy, 
that will be for all people, not just Israel anymore. All people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born. And so with that background in the Old Testament, as I read this, I think, man, I need an experience of God. And, and one day, it will be something like being on the mountain with God, but better. Um, so overwhelmed. The highest joys you can imagine. Don't compare with being in God's presence. And Luke shows us three ways that Jesus is, in fact, the presence of God. Number one, he has three titles from the angel. One, he's Savior. Only Caesar Augustus was called Caesar in that day. That was one of his names, Savior. Instead, the angel from God says, Caesar, he ain't no Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Now, Caesar was a Savior for a time through Roman oppression and rule. But Jesus' kingdom has no end. He's a Savior forever. Second title is Messiah. He's the anointed one, the Old Testament term for the person that will take away God's wrath. He is the Christ. Jesus the Christ. And he's also Lord. This is not just Lord like some small ruler. This is the Lord God, divine title. Jesus is the presence of God in a way, at this point in time, come to earth that nobody expected. The good news of great joy that we have here is that everyone has the ability to call out to God for his presence. God has drawn near to us. God has come to us in this Advent season. And so, for us believers... There's, uh, there's a real invitation, not just for a one-time experience of God here, an ongoing experience of God. When we look at the revelation of God in the Bible, what we see is these moments were great. They were amazing. And I think we all could wish that we would experience these kind of moments like Moses on the mountain. But from somebody who experienced the risen Christ face-to-face, the Apostle Paul, he will say in 2 Corinthians 3 that that the ministry that Christ has, which is better than the law, the glory that Moses saw, the manifested presence of God, was the law. And it was righteous and glorious and beautiful. But Paul says, Jesus' ministry is better because it's grace. It's not law, it's grace. So he'll say that the work of the Spirit enables us to see Christ through faith with an unveiled face. So if you're like me and you think, man, I would love to have that kind of experience. The invitation's right here. Taking on the idea of presence one step further. It's not that Jesus just came as a baby and died for sinners and rose for their justification. It's that he gave his spirit to indwell those people like the Shekinah glory, this presence of God, dwelled the temple in the Old Testament. This is why Paul talks about the believers of having a uh, body that is a temple to the Holy Spirit. God has, through Christ, given us the ability to dwell with him and he in us. And so today, as we see Jesus as this um, 
this child come, the presence come back to us. We see an open invitation to be with God, to dwell with God. And the implication for us is profound. The implication is profound. This means, this means that all the joys in life that we have, all of them, small ones, big ones, are all joys that we can experience in the presence of God. Every single one. You go for a walk in the summer when it's nice around here. <laughs> Glory to God. You enjoy the presence of family this season on Christmas. Glory to God. Enjoyable. You enjoy a good meal. All of these things we can enjoy, not apart from God, but with God. And that is good news. It's good news. It's joyous good news that God did not come to us as an executioner, as the shepherds expected. Instead, in the incarnation, he came to us helpless. Helpless and ready for us to embrace him in his joyousness. God's presence is available to us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And what is the response here? We haven't even gotten to the shepherds yet. They're still so overcome by this presence. They can't do anything. And it's just one angel at this point. And so in this last section, starting in verse 13, it says, Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with an angel, with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people that he favors. Now with the angel are thousands on thousands on thousands of other angels. Remember, just the one terrified them. They became like dead men. They can't even respond now. And the angels say, glory to God in the, in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. The war is over. That's what they're saying. The war is over. This is good news. And so I think there's a lot of practical application here for us. When we hear this good news, the only immediate appropriate response is sing. That's it. That's what the angels do. Sing. And, I mean, this makes the Super Bowl look like a tea party. Angels have been waiting hundreds, thousands of years seeing this. And now finally... God's presence has returned, and they're here, and the good news needs to go out to everybody. So they sing. And I think we have to do the same thing. And if, if you struggle with joy at this time of year, and there's a lot of difficulty going on, there's a lot of uh, always good, fun family drama that happens this time of year. On top of that, there's personal issues that you may have, maybe sickness, maybe depression, One of the best things that we can do to call our minds out of that and to God is sing. This is not supplication. This is not asking for things from God. This is not intercession. This is not, God, will you do this for someone else? This is, God, you are worthy of all glory. That's it. Nothing else. And it's really, I think, important that at Jesus' first coming, there's this announcement and singing that happens because it happens at his second. 
Revelation 5 tells us, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless, thousands plus thousands and thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing, honor, glory, and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. If that is your future, you can have joy that underrides the hardest things in life. Hardest things in life. Can't help but think about uh, C.S. Lewis at the end of Narnia that, that for me captures some of this joy. As Lucy walks towards the new world where the light grows stronger and stronger, says this, and then she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Joy with God, something like that. Three points of application as we close here. Number one, um, spend some time evaluating whether whether you are living in fantasy or reality. Luke gives us the clear reality. I think we often avoid it because it can be painful. But if we do that, we don't experience the good news. Second, ask God to help you experience his presence in the joys of everyday life. God's word is God's revelation to us. Reading his word, spending time in prayer is so important because you don't check a box. You spend time with God. You experience him. So let's do that. Third, sing to God for 10 minutes about his glory. And see if that doesn't change your mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence. God, we thank you that you've sent your son to be your presence here with us, connected with him through the spirit and dwelt by you so that We can experience all the ups, all the downs, all the joys, and all the sorrows of life with you and not apart from you. Lord, would you teach us to be your companion and your joy. We ask in your son's name. Amen.